Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Psalms, this being our last psalm until, Lord willing, next summer where we return to them. Psalm 87 and my sermon entitled, O City of God. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. Savior, since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasures, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Those are the first and last verses of the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. It was written by the same author who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton. And that him exalts in the city of Zion, the celestial city, the city of God. It shares the same topic as our psalm, Psalm 87. And so that may help us as we begin our consideration of a psalm that commentators variously called, seemingly obscure and unimportant, problematic from the start to the finish, and full of difficulties with its exact reading and meaning uncertain. Such a small psalm, it sure had a lot of detractors in the commentaries. Nevertheless, let's take a look at Psalm 87. We begin point number one, the glory of Zion, verses one through three. The psalmist begins with proclaiming the glories of Zion. Zion, the city that was known as Jerusalem, was the center of God's kingdom in the visible world. It had become for Israel the very heart and the very home of their nation. And the psalmist initiates this psalm by singing its praises. Because this is no ordinary city. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The hills on which Jerusalem was built were holy because God chose them. He chose them as the location for his city. Now that word founded, speaking about foundation, it's, a, it's an architectural term. And it could mean to set a foundation. It could mean to restore a foundation. It could mean to fortify a foundation. And it can refer to a lot of different things, not just buildings. It does refer to buildings. And for example, in 1 Kings 7.10, we read where Solomon is, has built himself a palace. We read that the foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and 10 cubits. So buildings can have a foundation. They can be founded. But it can also refer to the foundation of an entire country. We read in Exodus 9.18, Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. 
And so a country can have a foundation. It can be founded. But in the case of Psalm 87, it's referring to a city. And it's not the first time a city has been talked about that way. Cities can be founded. They have a foundation. Joshua 6.26, we read, uh, after Joshua and Israel had razed Jericho to the ground, we read that Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now I'm not gonna go into this, but this idea of it costing the firstborn if anyone would establish the foundation of that city I can't help but think of God. It cost God his only begotten son to establish the foundation of the city we talk about today. We'll get into that more later. Zion, or Jerusalem, was founded by God. God laid its foundation. And we read in this psalm that God loved Zion. In fact, it says he loves the gates of Zion, meaning he loves everything about Zion. He loves the city. He loves the building. He loves its location. He has placed his affections on Zion. He loves it. And he chose Zion. Commentator Alan Ross writes, his founding of and his love for Zion are therefore intertwined. He established Zion as his dwelling place by elective love. And his love for it as his dwelling place remained constant. Now we know that God's presence rested in other cities. We've talked about it in the recent past. In Gilgal and Bethel, do you remember the city of Shiloh which contained the sanctuary of God? That's back in the book of 1 Samuel that we will return to, Lord willing, in November. His presence rested in other places, but there was nothing like Zion. And Zion, we read, is a a city that people speak about. They spoke about Zion. They talked about it. They talked about its glories. Now, in writing that people spoke about the glories of Zion, there's lots that the psalmist could be referring to. He could be referring to when King David captured Zion from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Or perhaps he's thinking of the arrival of the Ark of God into Jerusalem. That was a certain glory. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12 through 15. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sounds of the horn. What a glorious day that would have been when the ark came to Zion. Or maybe the psalmist had in mind the glories of Jerusalem in the time of Solomon. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 15, we read that the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. What a glorious city. 
Zion had many glories about it which the people could talk about, but in light of the rest of this psalm, I think the glories that are in view are likely those associated with the gathering of God's people to worship him. Zion had physical beauty, and it had spiritual beauty. Psalm 48 affirms this. The first three verses of Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. With her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And so Zion was a city founded by God, established by God, restored by God, and fortified by God. It was a city that was chosen by God, and it was magnificent, and it was spiritually significant, and that's what the people talked about. You know, I wonder, was it the same psalmist? who passionately exalted that a single day in the courts of the temple was better than thousands elsewhere. Is that the same psalmist now who's talking about the glories of Zion? And so the city had physical splendor, and yet it was its spiritual significance, the spiritual significance of a God with his people that made this city unmatched in its glory. And as I said, the specific glory at the heart of this psalm is the gathering of God's people to worship him. We see that in verses four to six. Point number two, the people of Zion. These verses focus on the ingathering of God's people from the ends of the earth to worship him. The prophet Isaiah saw the day that verses four to six in this psalm prophetically point to. We read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us in his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We see in verses four to six, God both announcing and taking a record of his people and not just his Jewish people, but non-Jewish people, people who have been added to the house of Israel. These people are from nations that oppressed Israel, like Babylon, or nations that troubled Israel, like Philistia and Tyre. And it includes nations that enslaved Israel, like Egypt. When the psalmist mentions Rahab in this psalm, he's talking about Egypt. And Cush, Ethiopia, they had warred with Ethiopia. And yet there's people from Cush who are in Zion. People from all of these nations and many others are said to have been born in Zion. 
The psalm says they were born there, but it's not speaking of their physical birth. If they were born there, they wouldn't be Egyptians. They wouldn't be Ethiopians. They wouldn't be Babylonians. No, it's speaking of their conversion into the people of God, into citizens of Zion. Now, this converting birth that we hear about in Psalm 87 is an anticipation of the New Testament's reference to those who are born again. Born again, that's a strange term. It's a strange term to those who are inside the church. It's an even stranger term to those who are outside of the church. Perhaps you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not a believer. I want to spend a few minutes speaking to you this morning, explaining to you what it is to be born again. And in doing so, I know many of the believers here today will also be helped. This concept of rebirth or being born again is a very important concept in Scripture. In fact, it's almost as important in anything the Bible teaches. Consider the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Clearly, being born again is of utmost importance. Now, the theological term for being born again is regeneration. And regeneration is an act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to his people. And this spiritual birth in its entirety is a work of God and God alone. We understand this from the first chapter of John's gospel where John, writing about Jesus, explains, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. And so scripture indicates that God brings about regeneration. And that it is in being born again that we are enabled to put our faith, a saving faith in Jesus. Now exactly how that rebirth, that regeneration works, scripture doesn't reveal to us. It's a little bit mysterious. Theologian Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology writes this. Because regeneration is a work of God within us, which gives us new life, it is right to conclude that it is an instantaneous event. It happens only once. At one moment, we are spiritually dead. And then at the next moment, we have new spiritual life from God. Nevertheless, we do not always know exactly when this instantaneous change occurs, especially for children growing up in a Christian home 
or for people who have attended an evangelical church or Bible study over a period of time and grow gradually in their understanding of the gospel. There may not be a dramatic crisis with a radical change of behavior from hardened sinner to holy saint, but there will be an instantaneous change nonetheless when God through the Holy Spirit in an unseen, invisible way awakens spiritual life within. The change will become evident over time in patterns of behavior and desires that are pleasing to God. So, unbeliever, since regeneration, God causing one to be born again is his work and his own work alone. The Bible never tells you or calls you to be born again. The Bible calls you to repent and to turn from your sins and to place your trust in Christ. Christ can be trusted. He should be trusted. Because in his death and resurrection, we find through repentance and faith, forgiveness for our sins, reconciliation with God, and the promise of eternal life. And so I say to you this morning, if you're an unbeliever, that yes, one must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And therefore, you must repent. Repent of your sin. And you must put your faith in Christ in order to be saved. And I encourage you to do that today. In fact, I encourage you to do that in this moment. And if you have need for clarity on that, please come and speak to me after the service. I would love to discuss it with you. That's what it is to be born again, something that Psalm 87 points to. But let's return to the people of Zion, the, these glorious things in the city. Those who know the Lord are those who belong to his people, whatever their ethnic identity is. This includes nations that were their enemies. This includes nations that were far away from them. And certainly I think Psalm 87 speaks to the time in which it was written that there were foreigners in Jerusalem who were considered part of God's people, and yet, I think it mostly refers to a future time, a time when people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation gather together in the presence of God. And again, Isaiah prophesied about this on several occasions. We looked at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through uh, 4, but let's take a look at Isaiah 56, verse 6 through 8. Isaiah prophesies, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, I want to make a, a quick application here, and I need you to participate with me. I don't often ask the congregation to engage with me when I'm preaching, but I am this morning, and I want you to, to participate enthusiastically and without hesitation. This is something that is exciting and you should be joyful to participate. So, I would like those of you 
who were born in a country other than Canada, I would like you to stand up, shut out the name of the country you're from, and remain standing. Stay standing. People look around. This is glorious. This is glorious that even now God is beginning to call his people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him together. You guys can be seated. The application here is to rejoice in this. As you guys know, we have a bunch of brothers and sisters from China who are in a service right across the hallway. At 11 o'clock, there'll be more from China and from Arabic countries down the hallway. This is a glorious thing. And one of the applications coming out of this psalm is we too need to speak about the glories of the citizens of Zion who are gathered here and in churches all across this city and this country. We need to rejoice in this. It's a glory now and it will be even more glorious later. Let's keep moving here. Point number three, the joy of Zion, verse seven. God's people celebrate his salvation, which has brought peoples from all corners of the earth to worship together in his presence. We read, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Now the presence of singers and dancers indicates that the verses that precede verse seven are cause for joyful, exuberant celebration. You know, there's some thought that originally this psalm would be sung as there was a procession going to the holy city for some festival or another. And there would be singing and dancing as the people came to the city of God to worship together. That's the picture that we see here. They mention the word springs. All my springs are in you. This is figurative language saying Zion is the place where God cares for us, where God provides for us, both physically and spiritually. Even as a a spring in the desert provides water for those and keeps them alive, the city of God is life to his people. And so they dance, and so they sing. Now, as a way of concluding this sermon, I'd like to take a little bit more of an in-depth look at Zion, the city of God, as it's revealed in scripture. So point number four, the story of Zion. The story of Zion, the city of God, can be examined by considering it under three headings. The city of David, the city of God, and the lasting city. Initially, the name Zion did not denote the eternal city where God's people would come from every nation and dwell with him forever, nor did it even represent the city of Jerusalem. You see, the word Zion, they're not even sure what it meant originally. There's suggestions that it meant a rock or a stronghold or a dry place or even running water. But the first mention of Zion in the Bible is in reference to a Jebusite fortress in the city of Jerusalem. It occurs first in 2 Samuel 5, verse 7, which reads, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. 
And so we see why the first heading is the city of David. David captured Zion, and it became known as his city. And in the time of David, Jerusalem would become synonymous with Zion. And that became the seat of power in Israel. And David made it the nation's capital. And it became even more significant in the time of David because David determined that that is where the temple would be built. God brought this about. You see, Satan incited David, we're told, to number Israel. You read about it in 1 Chronicles 21. And David numbering Israel displeased God. He, he was displeased with this census. And so he struck Israel with a pestilence. And he sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. However, God didn't destroy Jerusalem. And David responded to all of this by building an altar. And he built this altar at a threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite at a location inside Jerusalem. And so David offered burnt and peace offerings to the Lord, and we're told that the Lord answered him with fire from heaven. And when that happened in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 1, David says, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And so Jerusalem became not only the political center of Israel, not only the social center of Israel, it became the spiritual center of Israel. And yet, as you know, it wasn't David who would build the temple in Zion, rather it would be his son. David charged his son to build the temple. And we can read about the building of that temple and the glory that filled that temple when it happened. This is in 2 Chronicles, verse 5. We read that the priests came out of the holy place. Uh, the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions. And all the Levitical singers and Asaph and Heman and Jaduthan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine lemon, uh, linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 pre priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And the word says, and when the song was raised with the trumpets and the cymbals and all the other musical instruments and praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And so we see that truly the city of David was the city of God. And we know, as we talked about before, that in the time of Solomon, Zion saw great splendor, so that silver and gold were like rocks or stones. And yet, as we come to a close this morning, let me remind you that the splendor of that earthly Zion pales in comparison, pales in comparison to the lasting city, the heavenly Zion. The heavenly Zion's glory is unrivaled. And that's why the author of the book of Hebrews declares, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Right now, there's no lasting city, but there is a lasting city to come. And again, it's prophesied about in the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 to 20, where Zephaniah 
prophesies about Zion in the future. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. They were prophesying of that eternal city. Isaiah, again, in a different place, prophesies about it. He says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. And so that as New Covenant Christians, our minds should go now to the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Psalm 87 is a psalm about the city of God and it certainly refers to the city of God, the city of David, Jerusalem in the times of the monarch, not to mention the times after the exile. And yet I think it so clearly points to the lasting city, the heavenly Zion. And we know, as we have said, the earthly Zion must have been beautiful in its day. And yet, compared to the heavenly Zion, it is but a shadow. See, the earthly city of God with its temple would, at different times in history, certainly be the dwelling place of people from different countries and nations and tongues and tribes. And yet there, are only, there is only one group of people who will be able to sing the, the song we see in Revelation 5, verse 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you were ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then it goes on to say, and though the inhabitants of the earthly Zion, or sorry, it goes on to say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And so Psalm 87 is a psalm of Zion, a psalm that is fulfilled only because of Jesus Christ. It's only because of the lamb who was slain that at one time God will bring people from every tribe and every nation and every language together to the heavenly Zion to praise him. And as we did a few minutes ago and we looked around this sanctuary and saw our brothers and sisters from other nations who have other languages that they learned when they were young, we get a small picture of what that will be like, that heavenly Jerusalem. When all of us, all of us who have been redeemed sing together, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Psalm 87 calls us to look forward to that, to rejoice in it now, to rejoice as brothers and sisters of the family of God now and yet to look to that day when the lasting city comes down and we enter into it with all of God's beloved to dwell with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Psalm of Zion. We thank you, Father God, for what it calls us to look at, to look at Christ and the work of salvation that he worked through his death on the cross and his resurrection, that it's through that that we can come to God. We can come to you, Father. And Father God, it points us to look ahead to that time when the heavenly Zion, the lasting city, is brought down and we enter into it with all the people of God to praise you forever. I pray, Father God, that for those who know you, this would be a cause for great rejoicing in the here and now and for great hope going forward. And I pray for those who don't know you, that you would cause them to be born again, that they would repent of their sin and put their faith in you, that they too might become citizens of Zion. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.